Good morning. Let us open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 23. Acts chapter 23, beginning in verse 11. And this morning we are considering all the chapters through the end of the chapter, verse 35. So I will not be reading the whole portion, but we will consider it as we move along. Acts 23. Well, if you were here this morning for Sunday school, which I highly recommend that you participate uh, you got one message, and uh, essentially the message was that uh, life is surrounded by conflict, conflict. And that presents uh, an interesting paradox, uh, because we believe and proclaim a gospel of peace, and, yes, and yet this gospel of peace, as it moves forward in the world, in our own lives, families, marriages, uh, it deals with conflict. It's surrounded by conflict. And so certain hymns, in the Christian church resonate with us very well because they remind us of this truth. One of those hymns uh, says this, Because he lives, I can, I can face tomorrow. I, know, I knew you knew that one. I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know, uh-oh, he holds the future and life is worth the living just because, what? He lives. Now, this hymn does two things that I like. First, it presents the resurrection of Jesus not just as a heavenly reality, but as a practical reality as well. It affects my actual life in the here and now. Because he lives, I can. I like that. The second thing that I like is that the author kept it real didn't he? I can what tomorrow? Face tomorrow. That's keeping it real. There are seasons in life when a day feels like a thing that needs to be faced because each day might feel like a head-on collision. Both Jesus and Paul spoke of days as being fraught with difficulty. Jesus said, Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And Paul said, make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Days can be things to be faced. The word tomorrow can sound very, very heavy. For some in our church body, the days have been and will continue to be things to be faced. Because they are loaded with deep sorrow, at times, days will seem unbearable. That's real life in a real world, plagued with real fallenness, producing real pain. Now, this takes us right into our passage before us this morning, which immediately hits us with the problem. If you're following the notes, that is the first point. The problem. What is the problem that is identified in our passage this morning? Paul's dark valley. Paul's dark valley. A valley made up of many dark days, some behind him and many still ahead of him. In chapter 23, verse 10, we left Paul in the barracks. After his life had been threatened 
during the meeting with the members of the Sanhedrin, which had been preceded by another life-threatening event right outside the temple premises. The Roman tribune, the Roman commander, who had witnessed the whole thing from the beginning, he ordered his soldiers to once again take Paul into safety. So in our passage, Paul is technically in a safe place. At this point, however, the main issue is not the safety of Paul, but fear and discouragement. There Paul was, alone in the barracks, in the darkness of night, contemplating all the stress leading up to that moment, having to face yet another tomorrow. It is possible that as Paul was in that barrack, Psalm 23 maybe was in his mind. Maybe he was repeating to himself, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Likely, Paul is now feeling that he just doesn't want to face another tomorrow of the same struggles. Discouragement for Paul is knocking at his door, just waiting for a small opening. Is that where you are this morning? At this point in the narrative, Paul might have been questioning the very success of his mission. He had to be rescued twice from people who hated him enough to end his life on the spot. Talk about conflict. And Paul knows that there is more hatred, there's more hostility in store for him tomorrow. The question in the reader's mind at this junction in the book of Acts is, can Paul face another day? Can Paul face another tomorrow? Now, before we answer that question, let me briefly address what we can glean from these verses already. The temptation to fear and discouragement is not uncommon. If you're feeling that way this morning, you are in good company. We are all susceptible to fear. We're all susceptible to discouragement. Dark days have a way of creating gloom around us. This is human reality. We do not deny these things. I understand that some may be wondering at this point, how do I know that Paul is feeling this way? Am I inserting this into the text? Where is that in the text? Let me put it this way. If discouragement and fear were not a problem, then verse 11 would look quite differently. I think verse 11 addresses Paul's dark valley of discouragement and fear because it offers what? The remedy. The remedy. And what is the remedy? Christ's comforting sovereignty. Christ's comforting sovereignty. The first time Paul received a word of encouragement directly from the Lord, you remember where it was? Where he was? Corinth. He was in Corinth where the Lord appeared to Paul and said to him, Fear not. Fear not. Now in Jerusalem, Paul is once again being tempted to discouragement and fear. Paul was a real human being. 
And so, we read in verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said what? Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. As you can see, verse 11 is both a word of comfort on the one hand and a declaration of sovereignty on the other. Did you see it in verse 11? Hence the words comforting sovereignty. That's what Jesus offered Paul in the barracks that frightful night, comforting sovereignty. What I would like to do for the remainder of our time this morning is to expand on this comforting sovereignty since the rest of the narrative all the way to the end of the book of Acts, really, is Paul experiencing Christ's comforting sovereignty and Christ exercising his comforting sovereignty. So here's the first thing that we see in verse 11. Christ's comforting sovereignty provides courage, provides courage. Courage. The Lord stood by Paul. Before we address the words of Jesus, let me quickly take note of the presence of Jesus. He stood by Paul. The apostle was tasked with an incredibly weighty ministry. The ministry of Paul was this, to explain Jesus to the Jews who thought of the gospel as offensive and to take Jesus to the Gentiles who thought of the gospel as foolishness. Paul got shot from every side. He needed comfort. And he received it that night in the barracks, first and foremost, when the Lord stood by him. For the Jews, to have the presence of God meant to have his protection. Psalm 46, 7 and 11 says, The Lord of hosts, is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And so Paul that night was reminded of the Lord's presence. The same Lord, think about this, the same Lord who told, told Joshua, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. The same one was now standing by Paul in the lonely, dark barracks. Whether they were about to go on a conquest of the promised land or just dreading the prospect of facing another day, the Lord is always with his people. They are weak, but he is what? Strong. Now the Lord not only stood by Paul, he also spoke to Paul and said, take courage. Jesus had said the same words to the paralyzed man. He said the same words to the woman with the discharge of blood. He said the same words to the terrified disciples who thought he was a ghost. He said the same words also to the disciples after speaking to them of tribulations in this world. Take courage. Those words were a favorite thing for Jesus to say. Take courage. Be courageous. Settle your mind. Cast away your fears. That night in the barracks, Paul was lacking what the Lord provided. So are you discouraged this morning? Are you afraid? Hear these words of the Lord. Take courage. Really? That's easy to say, isn't it? 
That's an easy thing to say. Take courage. The real question is, why should I? Why should I take courage? Well, thanks for asking. The sovereignty of Jesus is comforting because, next, it holds the future. It holds the future. Notice what Jesus didn't say to Paul. He didn't say, Paul, take courage. Hopefully, everything will turn out okay. Instead, Jesus says, take courage, for you must testify about me also in Rome. Allow me to paraphrase the Lord Jesus here. Paul, take courage. I'm in charge. That's the point. Paul, take courage. I am in charge. Only one who is Lord over all things, history included, can make such a statement as verse 11. Only one who holds the future can provide such guarantee. The best we can say as human beings is, if the Lord wills, we will go here and there. Thankfully, the Lord Jesus has no need for contingency plans. In other words, Jesus is not saying, Paul, you must testify to the facts about me in Rome also, so do your best to get there, Paul. I'll cheer you on and do my best to help you get there. Can you imagine? That would not be comforting at all. The point of verse 11 is to give Paul a picture of sovereignty that actually offers comfort a comfort that is undergirded by sovereignty. And that is precisely what Paul gets that night. Now Paul is ready to face tomorrow. And oh, how he needed to be reminded of the comforting sovereignty of Jesus. Verse 11 could not have come at a better time. For it reveals the next truth about the sovereignty of Jesus. Here's the next truth about the sovereignty of Jesus. It is comforting. Because it extends over evil deeds. It extends over evil deeds. Paul's tomorrow came like it always does. Like your tomorrow and my tomorrow. Ready or not. Here comes verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, till they had done what? Kill Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. I don't know about you, but that's a tomorrow that needs some major facing. To add sorrow upon sorrow, now Paul has to face an evil scheme against his life, with 40 men determined to see him dead. That's a difficult day. Just to remind you, the Jews deemed Paul's message a form of apostasy from Moses. Paul's insistence that Jesus of Nazareth was himself the fulfillment of all that was prophesied in the Old Testament was, in their minds, a direct affront to everything they had believed and known up until that day. With the coming of Jesus and the sending of the Spirit, the temple, the temple walls had been virtually torn down and it no longer held a central place. 
With the coming of Jesus and the sending of the Spirit, the law had become a matter of loving one's neighbor rather than strict regulations. And when the coming of Jesus and the sending of the Spirit, the people of God were now a global community of Jew and Gentile united to God and to each other by faith. So their fury against Paul was not just a religious impulse. Their whole world was being reshaped by what Paul was preaching. Everything is different now. Ironically, if you look at the text, the Jews reacted to the gospel in the exact same way that Paul had reacted himself prior to his conversion. We read in verse 14 that they went to the chief priests and elders. Remember what Saul did in persecuting the Christians? He did the exact same thing. So they went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. So verses 12 through 14 show the intentions of their hearts. In verse 15, we see the plot itself. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune, the Roman commander, to bring Paul down to us as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. That's the actual plot. This is really, really, really evil. In other words, what they said is, let's pretend we are interested in giving Paul a fair hearing. Let us pretend our cause is just. Let us create an environment of trust because trust creates vulnerability and vulnerability yields easy targets. But when we come to verse 16, we see a timely warning. Paul's nephew shows up. Paul's nephew shows up. We don't know much about him or his mother, Paul's sister. Luke mentions him almost in passing. Who knew Paul had a sister and a nephew? Neither do we know if any of them were believers. This sudden intervention might have been motivated by a common faith in Jesus or simply by a common love for a relative. Whatever the case might be, Paul heard about the plot against his life through his nephew. Now, this is a good time for me to address the greater points that I'm trying to make before he gets lost in the narrative. It is really after giving us, or literally after giving us, one of the clearest pictures of Christ's absolute sovereignty and authority in verse 11 that Luke tells us about the plotting against Paul. That is very interesting. First, he establishes the sovereignty of Jesus in verse 11, and then he tells us about a plot against his life. Now, thankfully, there is nothing in between verse 16 and 17. Why am I pointing that out? Can you imagine if right in between verse 16 and 17, the Lord Jesus shows up again and says, Hey, Paul, remember what I told you last night about making it to Rome? Well, based on the new information we have heard, we are going to have to revisit that. The Lord Jesus doesn't appear again like he did in the barracks to rework his original plan based on new information. I believe the point is simply to let the implications of Christ's comforting sovereignty speak for themselves. Jesus had already said that Paul would make it to Rome. Paul doesn't know how this is going to happen practically speaking since the odds are clearly against him. All he has to go on at this point is nothing more than the words of Jesus. And that's enough 
for Paul. What's the conclusion then? The conclusion is that Christ's word and power are one and the same. Christ's word and power are one and the same. Paul will make it to Rome because Jesus said that he would. Notice also that the sovereignty of Jesus provides comfort. Listen to this. This is very important. The sovereignty of Jesus provides comfort not because it fixes everything, but because it works through everything. I'm going to repeat that. The sovereignty of Jesus provides comfort not because it fixes everything, but because it works through everything. We are never told the specifics of how Jesus works all things together for our good. We don't understand the mechanics of all of this. We just know that Jesus does work all things together for our good. Paul was now facing his tomorrow as difficult and as trying as it was with the conviction that behind the movement of history, which includes real wickedness, real evil, behind all of that stands a Lord who possesses all authority in heaven and also on earth. So think about this. Paul had two options that night. Either walk by sight fretting over all the details that he had no control of, or option B, walk by faith in the one who said, you will make it to Rome. Do you realize that your options and mine have not changed at all, even today? We walk by faith, not by sight. Sight can be highly, highly deceptive. It would have been deceptive for Paul that night. Sight would have terrified him to death. But faith is the conviction of things not what? Seen. So what did Paul do upon hearing about the plot against his life? Well, he didn't question the Lord, did he? Some of us might have been tempted that night to ask, Lord, is there a slight possibility you spoke too soon? Instead, what we see is that the comforting sovereignty of Jesus, here's next, the comforting sovereignty of Jesus calls for active faith. It calls for active faith. Verse 17 says that immediately upon hearing the plot, Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. There's a big lesson here about sovereignty and how we should relate to it, isn't there? What does Paul do? Paul immediately tells the centurion to take his nephew to the man in charge, to the commander, so that the evil plan of the Jews might be exposed and thwarted. So what's the big lesson? Here's the big lesson. The fact of the sovereignty of Jesus does not mean inaction on our part. The fact that Jesus is sovereign over all things does not mean we should be passive about our lives. Think about it. Think about it. Paul had received the perfect guarantee from the mouth of Jesus himself that he would make it to Rome. If it came from the mouth of Jesus himself, could there be any doubt that he would indeed make it to Rome? No doubt whatsoever. 
Yet when his nephew showed up with the warning, Paul didn't tell his nephew, hey, you know what, nephew, I'll just sit here and wait for the Lord to sort it all out for me. He personally told me that I will make it to Rome, so relax, bro. He didn't say that. Instead, Paul took action to prevent his own death. Did Paul then lack faith in the words of the Lord Jesus? Is this some kind of slap in the face of Jesus as if Paul were saying, Lord, I know what you, say, what you said, but I just don't trust it enough, so I'll take matters into my own hands? Not at all. Nowhere in the scriptures are we taught that the Lord's sovereignty is somehow an invitation to be passive. Faith is active trust. Absolutely, Jesus is sovereign over your sanctification, for example. But by all means, pray, read and study the scriptures, be in fellowship with believers, put to death what is earthly in you, stay away from things that tempt you to sin, and take responsibility for the direction of your life. Paul never fell into unhealthy speculation about the sovereignty of Jesus. He knew Jesus to be sovereign, and he lived faithfully. That's what we need to know. Now, let me hit pause here for just a moment, and I want to draw your attention to something else very important. There are several historical facts in this narrative that are of interest to us. First, notice how the centurions immediately acted upon Paul's request, as we see in verse 18. The second thing is that the tribune immediately took the, the young man, Paul's nephew, aside to pay attention to his message regarding Paul. We see that in verse 19. And then third, notice with me that upon hearing the news, the tribune immediately takes action to keep Paul alive. And we see that in verses 22 to 24. Why is that important to highlight? I believe these facts are revealing, and this is important, they are revealing of the nature of Paul's testimony during his intense ordeals. For the Romans, Paul wasn't just another troublemaker or just another uninteresting criminal. If you notice, the, the Roman authorities took notice of Paul. The manner in which he suffered left a mark upon the people who witnessed it. Which makes sense because for Paul, suffering well, suffering well is one of the strongest witnesses we can give the world that Jesus both died and rose again. I'm going to repeat that. The manner in which Paul suffered left a mark upon the people who witnessed it. Which makes sense because for Paul, suffering well is one of the strongest witnesses we can give the world that Jesus both died and rose again. Like Joseph in the Old Testament, Paul gave evidence of another worldly strength in him which did not go unnoticed by the people in charge of his custody. Now, the only specific thing we know about the Roman tribune is his name. We see, the, we see it in verse 26. 
Claudius Lysias. We finally hear his name. It would be virtually impossible for us to know what ended up ha happening with Claudius Lysias or the centurions under his command. I do wonder, however, if maybe, just maybe, the Lord used the faithful testimony of Paul to open their eyes. Remember what Paul said to the Ephesians? He said to the Ephesians that his sufferings were their glory. Meaning, Paul had to go through many personal sufferings in order to take the gospel to them. I cannot know this for certain. I'm speculating here a little bit, but I like to believe that the Roman Tribune and some of those centurions will be counted among those who belong to the people of God because they saw Paul suffering to the glory of God. Whatever the case might be, here's the lesson for us. Don't ever underestimate. Don't ever underestimate the power of suffering well. Don't ever underestimate the power of suffering well. There is always someone watching. So now we come to the last truth I want to share with you from this passage concerning the comforting sovereignty of Jesus. And here it is. The sovereignty of Jesus is comforting for it secures the mission's success. It secures the mission's success. The words of Joseph to his brothers in Genesis apply very well here. What you meant for evil, God meant for what? For good. Two things, two good things happened as a result of that evil plotting on the part of the Jews against Paul. Number one, Paul got about 100 miles closer to his final destination, which is the distance between Jerusalem and Caesarea. Not only that, but Paul traveled in style, surrounded by 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. This is protective custody on steroids. So now Paul is actually making his way to Rome on Roman soldiers. They had no idea. Any doubt as to who stood behind all of this? Paul is probably thinking to himself, as he's writing to Caesarea, now that's sovereignty. That's sovereignty. Now the second good thing that happened was that Paul is about to stand before a governor named Felix. Paul is slowly but surely making his way up the chain of command to witness about the name of Jesus. First the tribune, then a governor, then he will stand before a king. What did Jesus say to Ananias when he said, go talk to Paul? He will be a witness about me before who? Kings. Hmm. Interesting, huh? Now, to ensure his audience with Governor Felix, the Tribune writes a letter in which he gives a brief record of what had taken place and why Paul was appearing before him. You see that letter in verses 27 through 30. Claudius Lysias, the tribune, did not find anything in Paul that was worth the punishment the Jews wanted. 
which reminds us of Jesus, doesn't it? They never found cause. I think the tribune always suspected Paul to be innocent. In any case, Roman law was clear that Paul had his rights, and the tribune is making the case in Paul's favor as he writes the letter. So he writes the letter to the governor of Caesarea, gives it to the, one of the centurions. They take off with Paul at around 9 p.m. and make it to Antipatris, which was about halfway, 50 miles north of Jerusalem. At that point, the 200 soldiers returned to Jerusalem, and for the rest of the trip, Paul was accompanied by 70 horsemen. Again, he was traveling in style. When they finally arrive in Caesarea, Felix gets the letter from Claudius Lysias, the tribune, and assures Paul that he will get a hearing once his accusers come from Jerusalem. You see that in verses 34 and 35. Obviously, by the time the Jews realized what had happened, their evil plot had been spoiled beyond repair. It all smells like sovereignty. It all smells like sovereignty, doesn't it? It can all be traced back to verse 11. It can all be traced back to verse 11. It was a very hectic night for Paul, but now he has the comfort of a sovereign Lord. Paul can now face tomorrow. Now, I could at this point just pray and just call it, go sit down and but I just want to finish our time by giving you truths that you can take home with you, um, even though these have been flying off the pages already. I want to be direct, and we will keep this brief. So here's the conclusion. Here's the conclusion. It is a threefold conclusion. And you know it already. You can feel it on your own. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. For Paul, as we have said repeatedly, the resurrection of Jesus wasn't just a fact worth getting in trouble for, although it was that, but it was so much more. The resurrection of Jesus for Paul was the reality that sustained him moment by moment. It was, after all, the living Christ who appeared to him and comforted him in the barracks. Here's next. Because he lives, all fear is gone. The courage Paul needed is the courage he received because the Lord Jesus, living, stood by him. And he could stand by him only because he lives forevermore. Brothers and sisters, let us cast away our fears, our fears concerning today, our fears concerning tomorrow. The Lord is with us. He always will be because death no longer has dominion over him. He stands by us in his spirit. So let us cast away all our fears, my brothers and sisters. Let them be gone. And finally, because he lives, he holds the future. Because he lives, he holds the future. Isn't that good news? That the future is not ultimately in our hands. I'm so thankful for that. Now, Luke, the writer of Acts, and Paul, the apostle, were not Stoics who simply and pessimistically resigned themselves to evil because there's nothing you can do about it. 
That was Stoicism. Nor were they Gnostics who sought to vindicate God by completely separating God from all evil in the world as if he is distant from everything that is bad. What we see instead is both Luke and Paul, we see in them men who believed in and spoke of the sovereignty of Jesus. Listen to this. This is very important. Luke and Paul both believed in and spoke of the sovereignty of Jesus within the very context of evil. Did you notice that? Jesus, think about this, Jesus is presented as sovereign sovereign, right in the middle of Paul's dark valley. Jesus says, Paul, you will be in Rome to be my witness, which is surrounded by the Jews are seeking to kill Paul. Sovereignty surrounded by evil. Sovereignty is surrounded by evil. Let me, let me make this very clear. The Bible is neither afraid nor ashamed of evil. It seems like for the biblical writers, evil was not necessarily a problem. Rather, evil is a dark reality that Christ can and does use for his own purposes. Luke did not engage in the book of Acts. He did not engage in philosophical speculation to try to determine how Christ's sovereignty and the evil of the Jews harmonize. You don't see that. He simply presented both sovereignty and evil side by side and showed how Jesus always wins in the end. This is what I love about the Bible. This is what I love about the Bible. It doesn't treat evil and sovereignty as abstract theories that need some super smart people with PhDs in theology and philosophy to solve them for us. It doesn't do that. You know why? Because they can't. For the Bible, evil is real, but sovereignty always wins. Jesus said to Paul, Paul, you will make it to Rome. But what about Paul's sufferings? How do we explain them in light of what Jesus said? We don't. That's the point. Luke didn't. I don't think the Bible's purpose is that we be intellectually satisfied in absolutely all points of doctrine. What the Bible wants is that we trust in Jesus as Lord over all things. Think about Romans chapter 8. One of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. What's Paul's conclusion in Romans chapter 8? Here's his conclusion. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's it. That's it. Don't try to figure it out. Don't try to explain how evil and sovereignty harmonize. Leave that to the philosophers. They're busy with that. They like that. But Paul just simply concluded. What can separate us? From the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, that's it. What will sustain you and me in times of suffering is not whether you can explain the problem of evil in neat philosophical and theological categories, but whether you are resting truly in Him who is Lord. And He does hold the future in His hands, evil and suffering included. So where do we end? 
where we started. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for this reminder once again that even when we don't understand, we don't have the answers, we can trust that Jesus is Lord. For no amount of suffering, no amount of doubt, no amount of questions can change the reality, change the fact that Jesus is now Lord and has all authority in heaven and on earth. So help us to be like Luke and Paul who are not interested in engaging in philosophical speculation as to how things work out. But they lived upon simple faith in the one who is Lord. And so we acknowledge before you, Lord, that we are far from understanding the things that take place in this world that create suffering and sorrow. And yet we can boldly come before you and affirm that you are indeed Lord and that you love us. And so we thank you for this conclusion that even though we cannot understand it all, we know this, that nothing, nothing in heaven, on earth, or under the earth will be able to separate us from your love. And upon this, we rest. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.